You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It it was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for this day to sit together, to be together, to come together under your word as a people of your word. We're thankful for all that you have done and given to us in the Lord Jesus. We're thankful for your word to us. Help us to understand and see Christ. And we pray for all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. So great to be with you this Lord's Day. So good to uh, be walking through this difficult, uh, confusing, but encouraging book of Joshua. I've been so encouraged by the grace and kindness of God in this book with you all. Uh, Just as Kyle prayed, I can't believe it's already July. It is July 2nd. The 4th of July is Tuesday. Uh, We're already making back-to-school plans 
It's like school just ended. We're like, no, here it is already. We're making uh, plans for the fall. Kyle and I have started conversations with like the M's and the B's to talk about sometime in the next 12 months when we might, uh, a small group of us might come and see them and encourage them in Asia. Like if we don't start those conversations now in the summer, it will be fall before we know it and then it will be spring before we know it and then it'll be summer again a year from now. We make, all, we make plans like these all the time. As humans, we are a plan-making people. We make plans all the time of long-term plans, of medium-term plans, of short-term plans. And then like, as soon as we finish here in like 45 minutes or something, we're gonna be making plans of like, hey, all right, what should we have for dinner? Uh, we are people of what should we do? And while it's good to be a planning people, we can often be in our spontaneity, even uh, our carelessness, we can be a planning people of quick decisions that lead to bad consequences. Uh, like when a, a friend of ours, um, maybe nine months ago or so, sent us some videos of a new litter of a, of a new litter of Great Dane puppies that her family had, and it, Marcy and I took like 15 seconds to the, see this video. We're like, yeah, we should get another dog. Um, and it took like 15 seconds for us to make that decision. And now, like I, almost a year later, it's like every day we're like, we made a huge mistake. Uh, now, don't tell my dog said that. Uh, luckily, she doesn't listen to the sermon podcast. But hasty decisions, especially when there are commitments involved. Like I've made this commitment to this dog. I'm not just going to like take her up to the mesa and say, you're annoying. Good luck. Uh, Hasty decisions, especially when there are commitments involved, especially long-term commitments, these decisions can have consequences that are difficult to live with. There are consequences to decisions. There are consequences to actions, and we must learn to live with them. But Joshua 9 isn't just here to teach us to be more careful as we make decisions. What you heard Scott just read about the Gibeonites certainly teaches us that, and we're going to think through that well tonight. That's definitely here. But what I want us to primarily understand about this chapter tonight is that God often uses hasty decisions to bring about deeper realities, to bring about deeper fruit, deeper good, even generational good. Realities that we couldn't have seen, that we couldn't have expected or even wanted. So I want us, I want us to see that just tonight under two headings or two sections, that of hasty decisions that then God might bring and use deeper realities, hasty decisions and deeper realities. All right, let me just read these first two verses again. Uh, in Joshua 9, verse 1, we read this, as soon as all the kings who are beyond the Jordan and the hill country and in the lowlands, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now, what is heard of this? They heard of what? Well, everything that we've been thinking about over the past several months together, especially what we thought about last week of the military outpost of Ai being defeated, and then just before that of Jericho being destroyed. At the end of the chapter last week, we saw Israel. They had begun to sweep north to worship and renew the covenant with God at Shechem in between the two mountains, Mount Ebal and Gerizim. And now we read here in verse 1 and 2, we read a list of basically every other people group uh, and in every direction of the land that God had given the people. The kings of the people to the north, all the way up to the Mediterranean Sea. The people of the central hills. The kings of the people of the southern lowlands. 
a list, and the list of these people come to us in a list of the exact same order in the, uh, as the tribes were listed in Deuteronomy 20, verse 17. These people here in this list of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That comes from that list, Deuteronomy 20. Back then, Moses told Israel that they must completely destroy these specific people in that specific order. That they, quote, may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Now we've thought quite a bit already about this kind of destruction this kind of so-called holy war against these people who are living in the land over the past two months, and we'll actually think more deeply about this next week and in the coming weeks. So if you're visiting with us tonight and thinking about these kinds of categories, about making war on these people of the land makes you a bit squeamish, well, come back next week or come say hi to me after the service and let's have coffee or lunch this week. But the reason given in Deuteronomy 20, for the complete destruction of these people is for a complete destruction of their idolatry, for a complete destruction of their violence, for a complete destruction of their injustice. I, I have an uh, older camelback, the water pack, you know, with the rubber straw that I got out of a plastic bin a couple of weeks ago. And like, you can, it's, it's blue, but you can see through the straw and up and down through the straw, and even in the bottom of the pouch. If you've had one of these before for very long, you know what I'm about to say that I saw in the straw. It's like black mold in there, which is not what you want to drink through. So I first washed it out with just a little water, still black. I washed it out with a little detergent, still black. Then I ran bleach through it, up and down, up and down, trying to flush this thing out, still black. I have bleached this thing, and it's probably safe to drink from now. It's probably just stained. But since I can just go get a newer, nicer one for like $15, I just threw it in the trash. They're like, what's the, what's the point of using this like moldy camelback? Now, human beings who are made in the image of God are not just disposable and replaceable water bags. Certainly not. But God did not want even the slightest hint of Canaanite idolatry to remain in the land and with his people. Bleach it out, and if it's still there, get rid of it. Get rid of it. What's at stake at the book of Joshua? What is at stake in chapter 9 is the very Canaanite way of life. And this is exactly what God intends to replace without a hint of the former corruption. That they, Deuteronomy 20, may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so that you learn from them that you might sin against the Lord your God. But notably, the kings who we'll see more from next week, when they heard about Jericho and Ai in verse 2, they, what we read here, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Not maybe a reaction that we've seen earlier in the book of Joshua. Something like Rahab said about like our hearts were melted about everything that we had heard about what God had done. They were not afraid of God. They were confidently opposed to him. Maybe they'd heard that the tiny little AI had beaten Israel the first time that they had squared off in battle, and then they just got tricked in an ambush. So they're likely thinking, all these kings, all right, we'll learn from what AI did right, we'll learn from what they did wrong, and then we're going to smash them, especially if we form this alliance together. We're going to outnumber them, and we're going to smash them. And yet again, 
we're seeing the potentially generational effect of the sin of Achan. Remember back in Jericho? Had Israel come through and destroyed Ai, like what would have happened had the nation been fully consecrated to the Lord, who knows how many of these kings would have responded differently. They just heard of what had happened to Jericho. They just heard of what happened to Ai. We have no we have no hope against this nation and their God. How many thousands of needless deaths, deaths would have been spared because of the disobedience of one man? But an important thing happens in verse 3. Verse 3, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, now, pause, they have a different response. They do not come together to fight against Joshua. Now, the inhabitants of Gibeon are Hivites, their cities, which are listed down in verse 17, they are all very close to where, where Israel has just been. They're very close, just a little bit to the south and to the west of Ai. If Israel is still at this moment, we're not quite clear, but if they are at this moment still up in the north in Shechem, uh, the Gibeonites are from what would be a long day's walk away. Perhaps uh, the, if we're all up in Bernalillo or something, the Gibeonites might be from right here at First United Methodist in downtown Albuquerque, maybe, maybe a little bit more than 20 miles away. And the Gibeonites are apparently aware of the Deuteronomy 20 type instructions for Israel to completely destroy or to completely drive out those who are in the land. But they are also evidently aware of what comes in the instructions in Deuteronomy 20 for the inhabitants of the land or the inhabitants of those who are not in the land. Earlier in that chapter are instructions for the cities of people that are not in the land, from people that are far away. There, Israel, Deuteronomy 20, tells Israel that they are able to offer peace treaties. They are able to enter into maybe even military alliances with foreign peoples who are not within the borders of the land. So these Gibeonites, who are absolutely people of the land of promise, they live there. They are living smack dab in the middle of the land. They come to Israel with an elaborate ruse. They made it look like they've come from a very, very far away land. Maybe, maybe they make it look like they're from somewhere really far to the north and to the northeast or something, like somewhere for like modern day Syria. All of, they've made it look like all of their clothes, their sacks, their sandals are dry and cracked after a many days, weeks, or months uh, foot travel here into Israel. Their bread is dry and crumbly. It's clearly not made from like a day's walk like from here to Bernalillo or something, or so it appears. And so they come to Joshua and the elders of Israel at the end of verse 6, and they say, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. And the Israelites are naturally skeptical. Verse 7, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute, perhaps you do live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? Joshua asks, who are you? Where did you come from? And they're a little slippery. They don't quite say where they're from. They just say a faraway country. And the deception of the Gibeonites runs deep. They are very cunning. In verse 9, they said to him, to Joshua, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. And then they go on to tell Joshua about the things that they would have heard about had they come from a many months journey away. They tell all the stuff. We've heard what your God has done. And then they tell of events that happened way back in like Exodus or in numbers, they are notably leaving out the stuff that happened like last week in Jericho and in Ai, the stuff that would have happened as recent news. 
Now, the thing that makes reading Old Testament narrative accounts tricky is figuring out the difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Are we reading account an account describing what's happening, or are we reading an account of prescription, prescribing what is commendable? We wrestled a little bit with that in Rahab in chapter 2. Should she have been commended for her lying, for her deceiving of the Jericho soldiers in the same way? How does the author want us to feel about the Gibeonites? Are they a people of faith, knowing that they are about to be destroyed, but they want to come and be part of the people of Israel? Or are they a people of deception? It's not altogether clear. And I've read and listened to many commentators and uh, scholars of Joshua this week who are totally split on this issue. We'll swing back around to them in our second half here in a bit, but here's what is clear, and here's what I think the emphasis of all of this is. It's not necessarily, the author isn't necessarily trying to get us to identify what what it is the Gibeonites are doing. Is it right or wrong? What we want, what the author wants us to uh, hone in on our, with our attention and our hearts is verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, the Israelite men took some of their provisions, the cracked and crumbly ones, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. God had actually given the people at this time a very easy and clear way to understand and know his will. The high priest was given two stones called the Urim and the Thummim. And we don't know how the priests were to use these two stones, but it seems like they kind of acted like an ancient yes-no magic eight ball. That's minimizing the Urim and the Thummim. The the magic eight ball that you use might as well just be a coin flip. It's a 50-50 yes or no. Uh, It's a game of chance. But presumably, the Urim and the Thummim were used to correctly identify Achan back in chapter 7 as the one who had stolen all of the stuff from Jericho. Presumably, Joshua is using these stones to understand the Lord's will to like narrow who had stolen these things. God was speaking and guiding his people very directly here in in this time with clear instructions that they might rightly discern his will in this like, time of new creation, of establishing his people in the land. Instead, though, the Gibeonites have come to make a covenant. Israel is rightly skeptical, so they just ask a few questions. They roll a couple of breadcrumbs in their fingers. They trust their senses. They trust their gut. They do not ask God for wisdom. They do not ask God for discernment. They do not ask God for guidance. And they say, yep, sounds great. Get in here, guys. Welcome. A covenant of peace. Verse 15, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now after this happens, presumably, shake a couple of hands, these Syrians or whoever these people are from very far away will then turn around and head home. If and whenever Israel is called on by these people in a political or military alliance with these faraway people who have heard about the power of God and have come to his people, they might ever call on them, then great. But likely not, we'll probably never see these people again until three days later. The curtain is raised and the real identity is found out. Israel learns the truth. As they begin to finally sweep south, they come upon these Gibeonite or Hivite towns and the leaders of these Gibeonites presumably come out to meet Israel with big smiles on their face and they say, my friends, welcome. It's good to see you. Welcome, my friends. Welcome, allies. Welcome, 
members of this covenant that we have made. And the elders must have been thinking, and Joshua must have been thinking, what have we done? We made a huge mistake. And because of the oath that they have made to them, they must come to them not in violence, not in driving out the Canaanite way of living, but in friendship, in cohabitation, in parallel uh, ways of understanding the world and understanding God and understanding life. And at the end of verse 18, we read, then all of the congregation murmured against the leaders. This is the exact same word as grumbled that described the people over and over and over again in the wilderness, that the people grumbled against Moses and their leaders for the lack of security and comfort that they experienced in the wilderness. Only here, again, it's not clear whether or not the people were right to murmur or grumble. They might rightly be saying, what in the world, Joshua? What have you done? We were supposed to obey the Lord, and because of your hasty decision, because you did not consult the Lord, because of your vow and covenant, we're now going to have to live in this parallel way of living with sin, with idolatry, this parallel culture of life and worship right alongside the right life and worship of God. And presumably with like tight-faced smiles and like open palms up of, I know everybody, I know, I know what we did. Reassurances of peace to the people. Verse 19, all the leaders said to the congregation, but we swore to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. While the vow that they made, while the covenant was hasty, it was a vow and it was a covenant. Their word must be binding. God's people must be a people of truth, of trustworthiness, When something is said, it must be done. This whole scene maybe reminds us of when Jacob came in with deceptive clothes, deceptive and hairy clothes, trying to convince his father Isaac that he was actually his hairy brother Esau. And even though Isaac Isaac hastily, because he was tricked, hastily blessed Jacob instead of Esau, what's done was done. Esau would later come to Isaac and say, just take it back, bless me too in the same way that you've done. And Isaac's like, I'm sorry, man, it's done. Now, these passages bring up all sorts of questions for us. Maybe the first for us as 21st century Americans, far removed from this time and place, is do we need to consult God before we make every decision that we make? But they did not consult the Lord. Is this for us? We can begin to answer this by understanding, again, the differences between us and Israel at this time. We are very unlike these ethnic and national people who are in a very precarious and deliberate time of geographic recreation in the land of God's presence. Nor are we individually the high priest of Israel with actual access to the Urim and the Thummim, like regular old men and women from like the tribe of Naphtali or something. Some woman named Sarah, or some man named Haggai, or somebody, just some random Israelite in this time, did not have their own personal Urim and Thummim. Only the high priest did. They did not have the Urim and the Thummim to help them decide who to marry, or what to name their children, or what to do today, what to eat for lunch. These stones were consulted for matters of national purpose and guidance. But these people here also did not live in a time when they had God's full revelation to them. 
Presumably, Moses had, within the past couple of years, finished writing the scrolls of the first five books of the Bible, but these were not readily readable or even probably very knowable. Nor did they have the coming history of Israel. Did they have the coming Psalms, the wisdom books, the prophets? Certainly the coming New Testament, the fullness of the word and wisdom of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And nor did these people have the spirit of God within them. God was someone to be consulted because God did not dwell within them, that they might walk in the spirit of increasing knowledge, wisdom, and conformity to the very desires of God. So as we thought about when we went through the book of Proverbs several years ago and thinking about decision-making, instead of directly guiding us with a voice from heaven, God now makes us into a people who can make God-guided decisions. That as more and more of our days are walking with the Lord, as we roll more and more of our weight onto him, our emotional weight, our spiritual weight, our vocational weight, our family weight on him, trusting him that he can hold us, as we view our lives as a series of small but faithful decisions, then getting to a place of making the bigger, more consequential decisions, that actually becomes easier when we're trusting the Lord in daily, smaller decisions. So if God emailed us the plan for every day, if you just, if you opened up your phone and you had a new email with the marching orders for every decision that you ought to make and how you ought to do that today from heaven, we would just have to look at the plan. We would not have to look to him. So do you have to pray tomorrow morning when you're standing in your closet and you're trying to decide whether to wear the gray shirt or the blue shirt? I don't think so. But do you have to pray in the morning before you go into the closet to look at the gray shirt and the blue shirt, Lord, help me to want what you want today? I, like, I lack wisdom in so many areas of my life. I am so foolish in so many areas of my life. But I trust in your promise of James 1.5 that if I lack wisdom, you will give it. So give me wisdom today. Give me wisdom to understand and to know what is pleasing to you. Help me to be strong and courageous to put sin to death in my life. Help me to be strong and courageous today to drive out laziness and selfishness and lust and pride and covetousness. Help me as I pursue wisdom, as I pursue courageous obedience in what you want to make decisions today that honor you. I do think you need to pray that prayer before you walk into your closet. Or prayers like that. God, you are real. I am sinful, I need you today. I don't necessarily think you need to pray about the two shirts, but perhaps as I'm standing in front of two shirts, I might, having awareness of prayers like those, I might be aware of how my heart is telling me to pick this shirt rather than that shirt because this shirt is in some way self-promoting or others attracting. Or, on the other side, I might... Because of prayers like these, I might have the wisdom to know that these shirts are morally indifferent, and they don't, it does not matter one bit which shirt I wear today. Both can honor the Lord and not make a bit of difference. And then these tiny decisions built on each other, on each other and each other and each other, hour by hour and day by day and week by week and month by month and year by year, then makes the bigger decisions less paralyzing. One of you recently shared that as you were uh, recently lying awake at night, staring at the ceiling in the dark, 
anxious about something that is just over the horizon, you realize that you had been asking Google the answers to your questions all day, but you had not asked the Lord. How many of us put our faith and trust more in Google than God? How often are we like that? If I only had more information, I would be happier. I would be wiser. I would be more content. If I had more information, instead of asking God for wisdom, for contentment, to trust in his good care and provision for us. Certainly with the bigger decisions, we absolutely should pray for wisdom, for guidance with job changes, with moves, with marriages, things that are to our understanding, certainly trajectory-altering decisions. Like this is a fork in the road, and this decision will change the rest of my life forever. We should ask the Lord's guidance in those things. But every decision is life-altering. Even if you think about it just like the, the butterfly effect or something. This will happen because this happened and this happened. Every decision that we make changes the course of our life and the course of others' lives. The small things that we value and choose shape what we want and who we are. So unlike Israel with Gibeon, we must trust the Lord. We must ask for wisdom. Again, not necessarily with every small decision that we must make. The Lord gives us wisdom that we might walk in freedom. And yet, we need the Lord's wisdom. We must be aware of the ways that the world in which we live the world today, certainly as Americans in this uh, time and space and this time and age after the cross of Christ, as we await the fully consummated kingdom of Christ, that we today live as exiles. We live as exiles in a host nation of parallel values, of parallel worship, of parallel ways of life. We do not live in a pristine land where God has given us authority or has given us permission to use force to use military force to push out idolatry. We'll think more in the coming weeks about what our role is in this world by way of political or cultural influence, what we should hope and expect. But for now, we must be willing to become increasingly aware of the ways in which these parallel values, these parallel worship, these parallel ways of life are seeking to distract us, are seeking to trick us into peace treaties that compromise our worship of the one true God. Certainly of hot-button issues like gender and sexuality, that what the gods of the age promise and demand that we are tempted to listen to rather than what God does say as creator and we as his creatures. We must be aware of these things. We must be aware of issues of politics and power, of believing that the best way to free myself from fear and anxiety is to demand the most amount of power that we might enforce our way out of what we're afraid of. We must be aware of those things. But we also must be aware of the more sneaky gods, the more sneaky peace treaties of comfort, of isolation, that the goal of my life is to get off work as quickly as possible, to finish my tasks as quickly as possible so that I can do what I want. Or the goal of my life is to retire as early as possible so that I can have more days, more months, more years to do whatever I want to, to go wherever I want to, to scroll as much social media as much as I want to, to uh, watch as much YouTube or binge as much Netflix as I want to. That that is the goal of my life. That is a sneaky God. Instead, 
because of our deep knowledge and trust of the Lord, of our daily coming to him for wisdom. We become a discerning people. We become an obedient people, a people of his grace and kindness on the very same coin of strength and courage, of discernment to push out what is not godly and to push toward what is not godly with grace, with kindness. Because here's the thing about Joshua 9. Israel was not the only party in this covenant that made a hasty decision. The Gibeonites too, seemingly only in an act of self-preservation and self-interest, also make a very hasty decision with Israel. A decision that will bring generational effects. Let's see what happens and how God uses this entire thing for his glory and for humanity's good. So secondly, that God often uses hasty decisions for deeper realities. Let me just read verses 22 through 27 here since we didn't read that a few minutes ago. Verse 22, Joshua summoned them, the, the, the leaders, the elders of the Gibeonites, and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying that you were, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of, the Israel, of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So here's the thing about the Gibeonites and Joshua's reaction to them, which again, to our modern ears, sounds unbelievably harsh. All right, so they, they brought some moldy and crumbly bread, and now you've just made them like generational slaves? But here's the thing, there are so many people within the story of Israel up until this point, the first five books of, this Bible, of the Bible, there are so many people, even uh, in the last couple of weeks that we've seen, who are not Israel, but become Israel. Just think about that Moses himself marries outside of Israel, but why? Why does he marry a Midianite wife? Because she has come to worship God. Many Egyptians come out with Israel, out of slavery, to go with Israel. Why? So that they can worship the God of Israel with Israel. We saw Rahab in chapter 2 and in chapter 6, a prostitute from, Jer from Jericho, align herself with Israel. And presumably, all of those people or their children were there at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim at the end of chapter 8. Last week we read, all Israel, sojourner, like a traveler, a pilgrim, an immigrant with Israel, and native-born Israel were there for the covenant renewal ceremony. The people of Gibeon, just like any other tribe in the land of Canaan, could have, having heard of the glory of God, having heard of the love of God, come to the people of Israel and become Israel. This would have meant rejecting the Gibeonite way of living. But had they come to Joshua... Not like they told him here, but had they come to Joshua like Rahab, then Israel would have welcomed them with open arms of peace. Not ignoring a Deuteronomy 20 command to not make treaties with the foreign people and their gods, because they, like so many people before them in the first five books of the Bible, Abraham included, 
could become God's people by a right worship of the God of Israel. And so what Joshua is reacting to against Gibeon is their desire to be connected to the people of God without being connected to the God of the people. Be connected to the people of God without becoming the people of God. Or maybe more clearly, they wanted to come to God for what he could do for them while they just get to keep their old way of life. They get to live in the parallel way of life and worship of Canaan while still experiencing the peace of the God of Canaan. But here's the thing. If we are really self-reflective, and I mean this takes a lot of self-reflection, we Christians who are here in this room will realize that we almost certainly did the exact same thing. Maybe there was a family or cultural pressure to come to Christ, so we did. Maybe there was a social need that you felt of wanting more Uh, friends and community around you, and so you figured the church could provide that. Maybe there was a problem in your life that you wanted or even needed God to fix. God, if you'll get me out of this jam, I'll follow you. God, if you'll deliver me out of this worry or out of this anxiety or this loneliness or whatever it is, I'll follow you. Maybe even there was a rightfully felt guilt over sin. Maybe you'd come to realize the damage or the harm that you had brought to others, that you had brought to yourself, and you came to God and you said, I need forgiveness, which is a really, really good impulse and first move. And perhaps there are some here tonight who have not come to God saying, I need forgiveness. There is guilt over my sin. There is guilt over the way that I have caused harm to you, caused harm to others, caused harm to myself. Forgive me. But here's what a maturing Christian is. A maturing Christian is someone who, is, who more and more worships God, who more and more knows God for who he is and not for what he can provide. Who comes to Christ and just says, I want you because you are you. You are worthy. You are glorious. You are beautiful. I understand that, that I get contentment out of that, but I want you for you. Tim Keller often tells the story, and I know, I know, enough with the Tim Keller. It's going to be a little while, though, before I stop. But he often tells the story of when he was young and the highway department was building this long bridge over this really uh, large swampy lake near his hometown in Pennsylvania. And he watched them over weeks and months and even years try to build this bridge. They put these heavy concrete pilings in the bottom of the swamp, and they bring in like heavy earth movers and big tractors and stuff, and they'd finish their work on Friday, and then they'd all come back on Monday, and everything would be gone. It was like sunk down into the swamp. They thought they'd dug down deep enough to hit the bedrock, but it was a false bottom. The swampy, goopy mess would swallow up their pilings, and they'd have to dig deeper through false bottom after false bottom after false bottom until they finally hit bedrock. This is the Christian life. We are the Gibeonites of using God, of cracking through false bottoms of what we thought was bedrock, of what we thought was the bedrock of the true and right worship of God, but was really and only the worship of the self. The bedrock of the heart, the, the, the false bedrock of the heart, the deceptive bedrock of the heart is the worship uh, of the self. When we get down to the actual stable, uh, weight-holding bedrock of God is that the worship and knowledge of God becomes not for what we can get out of him, but serving God for who he is. 
for himself. And despite all of our bad motives, despite our coming to God trying to bargain, trying to bargain to use him so that we might actually get to keep our, uh, our, these other gods, these lesser gods, but our actual gods, things like power and pleasure and approval and leisure or whatever, God just slowly and patiently lets the goop of the human heart swallow up another piling. The slow and sure process that God is absolutely committed to, which is why we shouldn't be that surprised, we shouldn't be that dejected when we crash through another false bottom of the divided heart. When we say, oh man, I thought, I really thought I was truly and rightly loving God, but here is yet another layer of self-worship. Here is yet another layer of me just using God for my own ends. Deeper, 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 give me God. Give me the bedrock. Give me Christ. That is the satisfaction that we are longing for. We just don't know it. We don't yet quite believe it's there. We don't yet quite know how to find it, but God is patient. Because you, unlike the Gibeonites who fooled Joshua, cannot fool God. You cannot. We have absolutely nothing to bargain with because God does not bargain. As creator, he holds all the chips and we hold none. We have no good works on our own to bargain with. We must simply and simply receive and trust him not only for his wisdom, not only for his glory, but for his love his forgiveness, his patience, that he actually does desire our good, that he actually doesn't just send us away when we crash through another false bottom of self-worship like he could, that he would be justified in doing. But he is patient. He is kind to draw us deeper and deeper and deeper that we might crash in stability on him. Our hearts finding stability in him for who he is. And that is the stability that he has created us for. Our hearts are just so full of goop. So full of goop that just distract us and wanting anything but him. Let us push down further. Let us be patient with one another as we push down further, as we crash through another fall's bottom. Let us not be surprised. Let us not be dejected. Let us not be filled with despair. Let us press on with hope. Because this isn't the end of the Gibeonites. We're going to see them again next week in chapter 10. But Joshua curses them in verse 27 to be cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. They're workers of the altar. This phrase in the place that he should choose means the place that God should choose. And it is always referring to the place where the tabernacle should stop for the worship of God or later where the place that the temple is, where the worship of God should be. The Gibeonites, despite their deception, despite their, self, their move of self-preservation, are to become temple workers. We're going to see them again centuries later in First Chronicles. Their cities are the places, are often the places where David worships and sacrifices. Centuries after that, the Gibeonites are counted among the people in the book of Nehemiah. They are now, as the people have been in exile in Babylon, are coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. The Gibeonites are there, fully assimilated as the people of God. The Gibeonites are now Israelites. 
And so while they, just like you and me, came to God for all sorts of goopy, self-serving reasons, God patiently broke through false bottom after false bottom after false bottom and showed them his glory so that they might reject their former way of life and become his actual people. And so here's one last takeaway before we turn our attention to the table where God shows us his bedrocked stability, that all other ground is sinking sand. We can see with the Gibeonites that oftentimes, and this is still true, that oftentimes belonging comes before believing. Many times a person without any knowledge of the church or any other Christian uh, needs to hear their need to repent and they actually come to Christ without belonging to anyone. The church then becomes this wonderful benefit. Oh, I thought I was coming to God uh, for, for salvation and then, oh look, there's this church that I get to be part of that I get to serve and they serve me. This church becomes a wonderful benefit and a means of God's grace to what they have become, that, that they have come to believe. It's a wonderful afterthought. That's usually not the case. More often than not, consider your own story, even if selfishly or socially or culturally motivated. People slowly begin to belong to a people, to be attracted to their kindness and grace and then say, what's behind that? What's under that? I want that. Might we be such a people? courageously driving out the enemies of God in sin, in false worship, in idolatry, and in injustice, and graciously welcome those who might become the people of God, rejecting the former way of life and into the right worship of the Lord, because this is all of us. Such was, were you. That we are, as Paul would write later in Ephesians 2, and what Kyle read to us as our assurance of pardon, remember that you, Gentiles, people of Albuquerque, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were people of Canaan, worshiping yourself, not worshiping the Lord. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Let them live, Joshua said about the Gibeonites after they had made a hasty decision if the Gibeonites had only known about the work of slow transformation that God intended for them, that God intends for you, let them live becomes let them live in Christ, that they might be seated with him in the heavenly places, that he might give them every blessing, that they might reject fully and finally their former way of life and live with Christ united to him for the glory of God. Let's thank God for this light, for his grace, for his transformative and inclusive love, mercy, and peace. Let's thank him. God, we are so thankful that you are a God of holiness, that you will not stand injustice, that you will not stand idolatry, that you will not stand false worship. Why? Because it is killing us. Because you love us because you want us to live and the only way that we will live in joy is the right worship of you and because you are worthy of it. God, we are so thankful that you do not just send us away, that you would be happy and content for us to be uh, foreigners, uh, separated from your kindness, separated from your covenant of peace, but that you yourself, Lord Jesus, have come 
to covenant yourself to us in peace, that you, as our mediator, you, the God-man, represent both sides of this covenant, giving us your righteousness, giving to the divine our sin, that we might live, that we might trust you, that we might have life, that we might have peace. Help us to know these things. Help us to uh, have the wisdom. Give us wisdom. Help us to have discernment. Give us discernment to know and to understand these subtle, sneaky peace treaties that we are making in compromise. We want all of you because you have given all of you to us. Help us. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.